my goodness. Joanna Shoup is here. I'm so excited. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so excited to be here. We've had you on once before, Joanna. It was when we talked about Prisoner of My Desire, right? Yes. And Roth Kalina. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Sabine and... um, And Rydstrom. Rydstrom, yes. You know, confession, you guys. When I finally filled out the IAD spreadsheet, that book ranked real low for me. I don't understand it. No, I don't understand either, because empirically, it should work for me on so many levels. Is it the demons? Is it the horns? Is it the... No, it's not the horns. (laughs) (laughs) I don't get it. very (laughs) pro-horns. No, it's real weird, but that that one, and look, didn't work for me, please. There, I mean, like, that's not a thing with IAD, but, like, it, sure. when you do the rankings and you, like, are forced to rank them in order, it ended up way down for me, which is real that's weird. That's sad. That makes me real sad. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But we, what we did in that episode was we really decided that Cressley Cole was writing uh, Prisoner of My Desire fanfic <laughs> for that one. True. <laughs> It's true. An homage. When you're Cressley Cole, it's an homage. <laughs> it's illusion or allegory, maybe. It's it's never fanfic. <laughs> no. But I would like the, like, you know what I would like? I would like a special um, edition Joanna Lindsay, like, box set. Hardcover, like, modern library style. Oh, yeah. And I'd like each one to have a um, preface written by a romance novelist who has basically rewritten that book. And I would like Cressley to do the Prisoner of My Desire one. Yes. Agreed. And that's, I'm putting that out into the universe. Which one would you write the preface for? Oh, gosh. I mean, I would like to write the, I mean, I would, I would like to write the preface for Gentle Rogue only because James Mallory gets bangs. (laughs) He's so, like, emotional. He's such an emo jerk. I love it. (laughs) Anyway, welcome everyone to Faded Mates. Uh, I am Sarah McLean. I write romance novels and I read romance novels. I'm Jen Prokop. I am a romance reader and critic. And we have Joanna Shoup here, one of our very favorites. One of our very favorite people and writers. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Have you been, Joanna, have you been listening? Have you been listening to the myriad events that I've been having online? Probably not. But has, have your ears been burning is my question. Because I have said again and again in events over the last couple of weeks, like, I really believe you are writing the best romance novels, the best historical romance novels out there right now. Stop. Um, I do. I think it's true. I think we're all chasing you right now. That's so very flattering. And um, coming from you, that's very high praise. Well, well, thank you. It's the truth. So, and part of the reason why is because you're writing this glorious series right now. So, why don't we talk about that? Jen, why don't you talk about your boyfriends and your girlfriends? Well, before we do that, I want us to talk about the topic. It's kind of like why Joanna's here okay, today. I was going to back into the topic, but fine. <laughs> Allow me to back into the topic. As a framing device for today's conversation. <laughs> Teachers. You can't just launch into the lesson without people knowing what they're going to learn. You start with action and then you go back and tell them what the plot is. God. Come on, Jen. I don't know you. I don't know. I don't appreciate any of this. Drag right, me. Topic. 
I don't want to talk about it. No, we're Joe. You know what? One of the reasons we wanted, we thought a really fun topic to talk about jo- with Joanna today would be historicals that are not Regency England, essentially, right? And you have a name for them, and I can't remember what it is. Unusual historicals. Unusual feels so judgy, but I, I don't know it? what else to call them. I don't know. I yeah, like I don't unusual. Know. Yeah, I guess. Curious historicals, interesting unique. historicals, unique interesting, historicals, unique. unexpected historicals. <laughs> Surprising historicals. <laughs> <laughs> Who's got their thesaurus open? I don't know. I like unusual because I think like I think often regencies can feel usual. Like, oh, here's another ballroom. But like unusual historicals, and I think it's the scope is very broad in that sense. Like it could be okay. place, time, even like location within the same time period, yeah. Regency, right? Occupation, class. First of all, I think unusual is a compliment in my life and work. But um, so I apologize if anybody has, if I've ever referred to a book as an unusual historical and like you have been offended, please know that. Well, that's why I wanted to talk about it first. I, I think that we have spent so much time as a genre, like treading and retreading ballrooms in Mayfair. Mm-hmm. That and I mean myself, I'm not. Look, I made a living. I've, I make a living on ballrooms in Mayfair. So, um, but I think that there's something really great every time you you open a book and it's somewhere slightly different. Like when so. I think about what I grew up reading, like there was like a there was a big sort of American. Mm. I think there was like a long history of there being American historicals that. I look back at them now and I think that they're largely really problematic sure. because they're like white people settling. The American West. Yes. And it's real manifest destiny mm-hmm. without any interrogating about what that means. It's, you know, and I look back on a lot of those now and I'm like, well, I don't I it's uncomfortable for me to go back and read sure. them. I don't enjoy it. And so I think in some ways when we look at unusual historicals now, I think they're I think they're better. You know, and and not just the ones, you know, this is not just uh, something I expect Beverly Jenkins to do well, right? But I think everyone writing historicals now is, I don't know, I think doing, I think there's a lot of people doing more thoughtful work. And so, like, American historicals now appeal to me, again, in a way that they did not when I think back about reading, you know, about, like, brave white people settling and there being, you know, Native Americans are enemies or, you know, so a lot of that, I think there's a lot of baggage with unusual historical. Yeah, too. I think that like the lens has sort of been removed, like that Vaseline coated lens yes. that that sure. American historicals were written with for for years has been sort of removed. And so many of those early ones, like, I mean, the one that instantly comes to mind is Savage Thunder, right? Oh, yeah. In, in part because of the title. It just, it's such a sh- now jarring. I mean, then I can imagine people being like, Savage Thunder is a great title. Like, it it says so much about what's inside. I mean, you think they're talking about thighs. I mean, are they, <laughs> right. are they talking about his thighs? Like, that is a yes. great title. In fact, they are. And so, um, but... But now, I mean, you wouldn't, you would not, like, instantly you hear that and you have a sort of recoil on that. Um, And I think about the title, the cover of that book, too, had, you know, it was so Fabio. And, and the hero of that book is Native American. And, you know, has, I mean, the cover copy even is just so, it's just so riddled with flags, 
that yeah. uh, that we still struggle with. I mean, we say this like, oh, you know, we fixed Native American representation in romance, and we absolutely have not. No. Like, right. no, but I think not. we're on a continuum away from this, from Savage Thunder to something else. Um, and I think now with the rise of own the the necessity for own voices romances, um, especially in historicals, like we we don't have enough. There are not enough. Um, own voices, historicals out there. And we need to do, publishing needs to do better and we need to do better as readers to demand those things. And um, Right. But that's why when we were talking earlier today or earlier this week about this episode, I sort of said, you know, I, for example, really loved a Viking book when I was Mm -hmm. growing up. But those Viking books are also you know, real problematic consent wise. And so we sort of talked about, well, do we want to go back and talk about old school unusuals? But I think, but then we sort of decided among the three of us that we would stay modern because the modern uncommon historical is a really interesting one. Yeah. I I felt like we should talk about it. I felt like we should at least say that, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah. I, I want to revisit Savage Thunder for a quick second because I actually reread part of it for a funny reason a few years ago. And I did not realize. So for those of you that don't know, the main character's name is, I think, Colt Thunder. Colt Thunder. So when we, by calling the title Savage Thunder, essentially is like naming our our hero as a savage, which is such a, a coded, not even coded, blatant insult of Native American people. And so to have like a ro- old romances and, and probably, to be honest, some new ones. I'm sure that there are people who have run across you know, really problematic stuff that's happening now. But I think, you know, I don't want to give like, any airtime to that, but I it does feel like um, those are not the things that I'm drawn to anymore. And I understand those old books now in a, a different and new way. Completely, completely. But, you know, I've had people um, say many different people on many occasions say to me personally, when are you going to write Regency again? Mm. Well, because you started in Regency. Yeah. And it's glorious. Like one of my favorite books of yours is The Lady Hellion. Well, thank you. Um, But, you know, I really just wrote that series to like get my foot in the door in publishing, hoping that I could transition to the Gilded Age, New York. But um, and I so she, you know, many people have said to me, when are you going to write Regency again? Because I would love to be able to read you again. Uh, I don't. I, uh. <laughs> I don't understand it. Yeah. And, I, and they have. Fla- and I said, oh, really? And they said, oh, I won't read anything said oh. in America. And I mean, that's true. Like we Jen and I have talked. I don't think we've ever had this conversation on the podcast, but you and I have had had this conversation a lot yes. in real life. Yes. Um, right. And I think. That one of the struggles is, you know, you're always kind of mind blown when I say to you, you know, oh, if you set a book in Scotland, you know, you're going to get fewer readers. Right. Like, right. I, I mean, my Scottish book has sold the least of all of my books, full disclosure and part of it. And it's because it's Scottish. And you sort of know when you right. um, when you dive into Scotland, other writers say to you, oh, well, just be ready. The sales are going to go down. And so, and then, um, you know, but you write the book you want to write. And then the same thing is true of American. They say, like, oh, if you move somebody out, if you move them out of London, like, America's a real tough sell, right? Which is why, if you think about it, even in those old books, 
um, that were set in the American West, there was always like an English character, an English woman who had been who had responded to like a bride, a mail order bride catalog or like an English character who. Well, Joanna, you've you're next year. Is it your next book that has an English? Her- no, you're you've written English. Yes. Coming to right. America. That was right. Like the first in the series. previous series. Right. And that was done intentionally. Yeah. Because you can sort of say like, oh, well, it's part English. Right. Yep. Or you think about um, even back when you think about the Andersons and the Mallory's, like the mix of right. Americans and yeah. um, you and these are really interesting. It's really interesting because also I think that there's a time period issue here where you can gloss. I think this is a specifically American reader issue, too. Like, I think British readers are like, mm-hmm. I think I think British readers are a different kind of beast for historicals, because when you write an English set historical, you're really writing it through the lens of Americans, um, of course. Like in the way we Vaseline the lens of England, right? Like we tell ourselves, like we don't have to deal with slavery because it, it was banned in England at the, by this time. But like, fine. But also, like Victoria was colonizing the world. Like there is, it's not. There is a whole different piece of the puzzle in England. Um, but then you sort of think about the way readers come to America, and like London had cobblestones and like a, there was a city and so it felt sort of urban in the way that like it felt in weird ways cleaner and I often talk about like the American West is too dusty like yeah you just feel like it's watching Deadwood and you're like everyone here is just so gross right <laughs> <laughs> so they recur to you strange bathing in a tub you've dirtied coming out thinking you're clean you need a bath Jane and I'm going to fucking take it. I'm raising the general fucking question. Like, when was the last time Al Swearingen washed his, like, long underwear? Never. <laughs> Never. <laughs> and so, this is a real deep cut on Deadwood. But the the reality is very true that there's, like, a... It's hard to erase for Americans, I think, for people who lived and grew up in America learning about the American West. Like, it's hard to erase that. The dust. The Steinbeck of it all. It means American readers don't have to think about slavery. Exactly. Right? They don't have to think about the lead up to the Civil War. They don't have to think about genocide of the of right Native Americans and the, you know, Trail of Tears. But I think it also then reinforces like a real interesting sort of Eurocentric. Yes. You know what I mean? And again, like, I'm not, it's just like, it's just fascinating. Well, and there's the added fascination too. I want to come back to obviously New York because my issue with, I can't, I can't read anything outside of London is like Gilded Age New York has all of the trappings of Regency London. Yeah. So it's like money, power, corruption, yeah, infrastructure, like all of that stuff is here too, here because I'm in New York. So, um, but the, but I also want to say there's a really, I think there's some kind of like anglophilia here too in a, in a really substantive way because you can't set up can't set a book in Scotland can't set a book in France. Yeah, and the thing that I've when I've asked people, you know, because I. 
when they tell me they won't read anything set in America, I ask them why. And they say, well, I can't romanticize our history like I can with British history. <gasps> so they know it. But do they do they know it? Do they really? I mean, how do they think the Dukes made all their money? Uh, No. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, so and we also don't know American history like we think we do. This is obviously true. <laughs> Welcome to 2020. Like, we think we know it so well because we've been taught, quote unquote, history since kindergarten. Certainly most romance readers wouldn't read like a Civil War era. Like we've always we've always said, like Civil War is the, the true third rail, right? Like you can't romanticize war. Even though Alyssa, Alyssa Cole did that amazing. Right. I do think that when it's written by own voices, writers who are writing a thoughtful, right. who are doing sure. what, what Alyssa does or what you know, Beverly has done. Um, It's a different kind of thing. Any white writer trying to tackle the Civil War has really got to feel like, well, shit, what if I, what if I fuck up and it's Scarlett O'Hara and Rhett Butler? And if they aren't thinking that, then that's definitely what they're going to do. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But then again, we don't, we romanticize war so much in Regencies. Literally, the Napoleonic Wars were happening during the Regency. Right. That's the story that, that is constantly told when you put a soldier on the page in the Regency. So it's just really interesting. But we seem to be able to avoid it in Regencies, too. Like, oh, he came back from war, but it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Like, But it's like France war, so it's a different kind of war. Yeah, I mean, there are a bunch of romances that are set in historical romances that are set in India. You know, that's real problematic. Yeah? Yeah. I think it was not that long ago that I discovered that the Regency was really only like 10 years long. Because it feels like it's a hundred years long. (laughs) And I was like, what in the hell? And so is it just because of Jane Austen? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And and hair. hair. It's hair. It's hair in Austen. And the, like, pristine, white, cis, anti-Semitic world that hair set down. And and so there there is a lot of that, for sure. Um, but, you know, it's interesting also because, as, as Joanna said, like readers don't know the history of England, so they're not they don't they don't think about it as much. Or I mean, I don't want to generalize, but like a lot of most a lot of readers don't think too hard about the history of England. But I'm right now writing Victoria just became queen in Daring and the Duke. So now I'm squarely in Victorian times, right? Early Victorian and when I referenced them that way somewhere, someone was like, a reader was like, oh, I don't, I don't read Victorian. And I was like, what an interesting thing. Because you'll read 1836, but you won't read 1837. Wow. That's a weird, that's a weird thing. Is that what that means? Or is what they mean, I'm not interested in the Victorian moors I think I know about that are regressive. I don't know, because regressive more like, a lot of readers don't even think that, like, don't like when Regency heroines are, you know, bolder. But again, that's that's a misconception that, that has been, like, perpetrated out of, you mm-hmm. know, I just learned through research that nipple piercings were all the rage in Victorian England and Paris. They would go to Paris and get their nipples pierced. When I'm in Paris, I'm the chicest of the chic. Amazing. I love this. First, oh of all, first of all, I'm putting that in a book somehow. Of course <laughs> so, you are. <laughs> somehow I'm putting that in a book. But, you know, we, 
I mean, who would ever have thought? Because we've sure. been taught that Victorians were it's, so repressed, but they really weren't. What happened to women during the Victorian era happened over years. Yeah. Did you ever read The French Lieutenant's Woman? Yeah, of course. I feel like I read that in high school when I was like also reading romance. So in this book, there's essentially like a dual narrative where it's a, you know, story of this Victorian woman falling in love with, I think, a soldier who comes back or whatever. But the author is also telling sort of like the real story of like Victorian time. Like, at the, right? Mm-hmm. There's sort of a narrative voice unpacking sort of this mythology of Victorianism. Yeah. And it's, and I remember like being really fascinated by it, like both structurally, right? Like, baby Jen back when she was 18, but also just like really like the whole idea of the pristine version of something we sell versus like what we historically know is true. And I know that not all historical readers want to do that second thing, but I do. One thing I would really like, I think would be very interesting is to know, to ask readers specifically about time periods. Hmm. Because when they say things like, I don't read Gilded Age, like I won't read outside of Regency England, what I want to know is what is it that is the boundary, right? Because if you don't read, if you don't read outside of Regencies, you don't read Lisa Kleypas, you don't read me, you don't read Joanna, you don't read Sophie Jordan, you don't read Beverly Jenkins, you don't read Elizabeth Hoyt, Elizabeth Hoyt, you don't read Eloisa James. There are huge swaths of big historical names that you don't read. And I wonder if they know they don't read Lisa Kleypas. Do you know what I mean? Like, maybe they do, and they just think that she's... Regency. Yeah. So I'm just curious because I think when we talk about, I mean, all of these are are what I would refer to as, you know, usual historicals. Like these are all, except for Joanna and and Beverly. But like, you know, when we're, because they're, you know, British set and during the 19th century, mostly late 18th, early 19th century. So, but the, um, you know, I would be very interested if you are a reader out there and you do read historicals, but you don't read outside of the Regency, would you tell us like what it is that is your boundary? Like, is it the dresses? Is it the the ballroom? Is it the Prince Regent? Like, are you just super into (laughs) pretty? Like, I don't. (laughs) But like, I think about it and it's definitely, you know, like the, the two who I can think of who are squarely Regency writers are Julia Quinn and Tessa Dare, ah, and Vanessa Riley writes like squarely in the Regency. Yes. So I'm curious, and please know that we are not judging you. We we're just curious, like where, what's the line, and how do you draw it? Joanne, I really want to hear about sort of your process and why you were so interested in Gilded Age New York. But you know, for me, reading ever, I mean, you know, reading Vanessa Riley, reading you, reading Beverly Jenkins, Alyssa Cole, reading, you know. Um, I, I mean, I mean, you know, E.E. E. Ottoman, K.J. Charles, like there's so many people I want it to be. I'm, I'm tired of the ballroom and that's just me. But, you know, those books hold very little interest for me anymore. And maybe it's just because I'm older and I feel like I've read them all. It's hard to make that fresh. But I really love an unusual historical. We're going to talk about a bunch of them today. But we I would love to hear about like why 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 was Gilded Age New York such a like the goal for you to get there? Well, I grew up reading Edith Wharton, 
So let's start there. Like, I didn't read Jane Austen until I was in my 30s. And I was like, sure. Okay. <laughs> fine. Right. I guess. All right. So for me, um, I grew up reading Edith Wharton and just... Uh, I had grandpa- great-grandparents that came through Ellis Island um, from Italy. So I have always felt, you know, when we took trips here as a as a child, here I say here because I live outside New York, um, as a child. So I visited, I saw it, I, you know, I just feel, I guess, a connection with the history to the city. And um, the Gilded Age for me is... First of all, there's all the parallels to today that just make it so super relevant for me. You know, the political corruption, police corruption in this new one, police, police corruption, the wealth concentrated at the top, the social, um, you know, you have the the comparisons to the Regency with like the dresses and the social um, structure in old New York. It's also we see the explosion of all the technology the you know, that comes in the progressive age. So for me, all of that is always been I've just been fascinated by it. Um, So like I said, I I always had the intention of writing in the Gilded Age. It has been a little bit, you know, for the reasons we've talked about an uphill climb. Exactly. So but there are classic romances that are Gilded Age set. Megan McKinney wrote Lions and Lace. Yes, Megan McKinney, who, you know, sadly... Problematic. Yeah, as a human. (laughs) Yes, as a human. (laughs) Check Wikipedia, everyone. (laughs) I'll put it it in show notes. Lions and Lace was one I read, you know, when it came out in the early 90s. And that was super formative. Like, you want to talk books that blooded me, like Uh, Lions and Lace is right up there. Do you know, I too was blooded by a Megan McKinney book, and I made, and we were going to do it, and I made Jen read it, and she was like, we cannot do this book. (laughs) When Dawn tames the... Till Dawn tames the night, Uh, yeah. Oh, and it's it's like the worst possible, talk about, but also an unusual historical, Pirates in the Caribbean. Yeah, but that's why that alone, you now know right. why it's problematic. So right. um, in the 1700s. Yeah. Lions and Lace is set in New York, Irish hero, um, a society heroine. So there's all the class conflict. Well, this is the thing. This is the thing about Gilded Age New York that I so one of the cornerstone conflicts of a historical of a regency historical is class without class i mean obviously there are lots of like rich you know both sides are perfectly comfortable so the that inherent class difference is so easily replicable in gilded new york like you have such a class system in Gilded Age. Right. And that was what was fascinating for me to explore for this series, because, um, uh, you know, all of the excitement was happening downtown. Sure. I mean, once you get south of 34th Street, you have the Tenderloin, the Theater District, you know, Chinatown, uh, the Bowery with, you know, all the dance halls and the the saloons. So for me, it was um, I really the idea was to take the Schuyler sisters, put them in Gilded Age, New York, and then they go downtown and fall in love with their do wells. Yeah. I love it. Mm-hmm. Noble scoundrels. Yes. <laughs> the best kind of scoundrels. <laughs> um, but so that's and that's what's amazing, because also, like, nobody had money like Gilded Age New Yorkers had money. Truth. Yeah. Like stupid, stupid money. Crazy money. 
and built and like built on actual work, right? Like for uh, it's yeah. I like, mean, I mean, they build railroads. I mean, they Carnegie was not out there like hammering no, railroads, sure, like no. but the but there was a there's a, work a certain ethic. amount of you can sort of lift it out in some ways of all of the like baggage that comes with a dukedom, right? It's like they're kings. I mean, we've talked so many times, like every romance hero has to be a king, but these are kings who like actually did work to, to make their money. It's one of my favorite things actually about American historicals. And it's ironic because I'm like well known for not liking too much work in a romance. Fossils. But I... Right? Too many fossils. <laughs> Joanna and I are on a thread with all the other writers from the Rita writers room. And somebody, like, came on and was like, I'm trying to figure out this, like, plot point. And it was, like, very complex. And I was like, you guys, this is all fossils. <laughs> <laughs> it's all fossils. And, like, half the room only writes contemporaries. And they were like, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> the irony of this is I, I don't want to know about fossils or spreadsheets, but I do like characters that work. And I like characters that find value in themselves as workers. And every American historical, that is such a big part of our story. Well, because they have to work. They have. There are no idle... I mean, now there are many idle rich people in America, but right. in, like, early days when that stupid money was being made, these were not idly rich men. No. Or women, frankly. Like, the women were doing a ton of work behind the scenes to make sure the men could continue to make money. And I mean, like, we can talk about capitalism for days about, like, what what we're saying about that. But the reality is, is like, money in romance novels, like, billionaire heroes sell for a reason. And in the Gilded Age, there were no laws. I mean, there's no protections. There's no laws. There's no SEC. There's no, I mean, it's just every man for himself. But there's also, like, no OSHA. So you can sort of start talking about, like, you can really dig deep on issues that feel relevant still um, in many ways. And also you can make your um, rich, stupid rich ne'er-do-well, like, a noble guy in, in really interesting ways. So, like, Jack Mulligan is really a like that character, right? And I know this is like, you know, who knows if this will work for people, but the idea of like his criminal empire being built upon the idea that he has to take care of people is one that really worked for me. Well, that's the mob. That's the genesis of the mafia and all gangs. Right. I mean, he his whole thing was we can do it better ourselves. If we band together and stop fighting each other, we can take on who really matters. And that's, you know, we become powerful enough that the police can't touch us, the politicians can't touch us, and we are in control of our own destiny. Which I've got to say, it, you know, I mean, I read, well, I've read The Devil of Downtown multiple times, even though I only have an archive, it's fine. But <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, like, there's a whole subplot about the police, about the police not caring, about the plight of women, about um, them really being on their own, about this idea that they are just, you know, kind of crooked. There's some good cops, yes, but most of them, like the sort of the machinery of the police department is not there to serve the people. And, you know, that, you know, I read that and was like, true, true then, tr- true now. Sadly, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. It was real, real corrupt. Still, I mean, in New York City, this is the thing that blows people's mind. But like in New York City, it still is. I mean, 
we here in uh in in Brooklyn so there's a community there's like the democrat the the New York City Democrats the the old school New York City Democrats um have a community system where block by block you can um essentially sign up to be the the representative of the New York City Democrats on your block literally your street your one block wow um and the theory was this was invent this was invented to consolidate power around certain men in New York City and so like what would end up happening is people would they would install on every block like a person who was in their pocket and then that person would vote in community meetings um for them and like it would end up and then if anybody went into um this happened like several years ago Eric was looking at like essentially like signing up for our block to to be the community <laughs> representative and he went to a meeting um of you know regular Demo- like normal everyday democrats not new york city democrats and they said it's really really hard to get anywhere in that system because ultimately you end up like hitting a wall with like boss tweed style figures who are like well i guess if you want to help you can come out to my business and help to hand out turkeys at Christmas. And it's like, that's as much help as you're willing, as I'm willing to accept from you. And it's New York City is entrenched in this like old school, everything that is in Joanna's books, still the seeds of it are still here. Chicago, too. Chicago, too. Well, one of the most amazing books I've ever read about Chicago is called American Pharaoh, and it's the story of the first Mayor Daly. Yeah. Mm. And I read it and was like, oh, that's what they mean when they talk about the machine, right? Like sort of the democratic political machine and how it worked at a, like a, at a street level. And if you were at all interested in like sort of city, I mean, it's... It's it reads like a novel because it's like one of those things where you read it and you think if this was in a book, people would be like too heavy handed, dial that back a little bit, you know, and it it is it's those it's so fascinating that I love having stories that like tap into this like really fascinating history. Like like you said, people think they know this history and they don't. Joanna, you are doing right now, I want to plug this because I noticed this morning I never go to Facebook and this morning I went to Facebook and I saw this. You're doing the history of the book. Yes, right. Well, I was. it's funny because I was taking this webinar that I paid for and it was like about the history of, you know, five points or whatever. And I was like, man, I could give this, I could, I could give I this could webinar. Like, I was like, yep, yeah. that's in my book. Yep, that's in my book. And I was like, oh. I wonder if people would be interested if I showed it, like if I put yes. together like sort of like the the bones of the book and here's what five points is. Here's what the tenderloin is. Here's what I mean by uptown. Here's what I mean by downtown. And so I happen to ask my reader group on Facebook, like, is this something you guys would be interested in? And they they and they died. They, died. they were fun. so excited. And tell everybody when it is. Um, it's Thursday, July nine at seven o'clock Eastern Standard Time on my Facebook page, which is just Facebook.com Joanna Shoop author. We will link to Joanna's Facebook page in show notes. Um but it sounds awesome and I am absolutely going. Yay. Um and I that's the cool thing. I mean this is the other reason why I love historicals that are I mean for me personally I love them because like I don't 
I don't write outside of, you know, a very specific place. And so, like, the research that I do is about that very specific place. And it's always fascinating to me when I turn up a historical that's about a place and a time that I don't know a ton about. And I think that that's something that's really interesting, too, for because it always feels to me like, Jen and, uh, Jen and I have talked about this on the podcast before, but I think a lot of there's a sort of barrier to entry with historicals that is like, oh, I feel like it's going to feel like school for right. readers. right. Um, and then at the same time, so I, I wonder if sometimes there's that it's sort of, I, that's, that's a model. That's a mental model. I'm unable to make, like, I can't see downtown New York in 1890. So I won't, it'll be too much work to read this book. But the reality is, is like, these are super sexy characters who are like the Prince of Broadway is about to like, Essentially, like a, a woman who wants to run a casino for women who goes to the biggest casino owner in New York City and is like, I need you to teach me. And then they just are sexy together for foreigner <laughs> pages. I mean, it's absolutely remarkable. And then at the end, you're like, now I want to read every book about the history yes. of New York City casinos. Same. So let's talk about, at the end, maybe we'll have you sell Devil of Downtown a little bit since this will be coming out. But let's talk about some other books that we think, like, are, you know, have that, have that feel. Sure. Why don't you start since you are cruise directing? <laughs> I, you know what? I love Jeannie Lynn's historicals. Mm-hmm. And I think I've talked about one before, like back in season one, but not everyone listens to everything and there's no time like the present is she has a really um, she's written a lot of different like subgenres, too. She has a steampunk uh, series, but her Tang Dynasty series is one of my favorites. And the third book in the series is called My Fair Concubine. And this is set in ninth century China. It's like 842 or something. Um, And it is a terrific series. And in this third book, I love a story about like two people who are going to like band together in some sort of we're going to trick some people. Right. And so in this case, the hero's name is Fei Long. And he it's the book starts off with him discovering his sister who he has not seen in years. Their father has died, and she's, like, having an affair with someone, and he, by all rights, should be able to, like, kill this dude, but instead he lets them go. But it puts him in a lot of hot water because his sister was supposed to marry someone from, like, a nearby, like, country. Essentially, the emperor of China at this time was using um, arranged marriages as a way of, like, I don't know, like, smoothing out international Uh, conflicts and so he's really stuck because now his sister is gone and what happens is he runs into this young woman um yan ling at a tea shop he gets her fired um essentially and then agrees like they're gonna work together and she's gonna pretend to be his sister and you know sort of take on this new life she's an orphan she doesn't have anybody so he's offering her this chance to like essentially like learn how to be pretend to be like a sort of imperial young woman and get married and of course in the process of them faking it right her learning how to do calligraphy i mean he like holds her hand and shows her how to do brush strokes (laughs) they they fall in love and i it is such a terrific series and it is just a really um like i don't know like i i just love the like the lushness of like their life together 
and the description of Imperial China at this time. And it's a fantastic series. And and it's old. It's old. I, I think she probably wrote this 10 years ago, at least. Yeah, at least. Her writing's beautiful, though. Those, I think, were Harlequin. Mm-hmm. These are. They're Harlequin set in 1842 uh, in the Qing Dynasty. I don't know if I said yeah. that correctly. But uh, in in China. And they are um, steampunk. The Gunpowder Chronicles. And the last one was published in 2017. Joanna, you also were going to talk about some of your favorites. Yes. Um, well, just... For, to give people who are eager for, like, a non-New York setting, um, Felicia Grossman writes um, mm-hmm. Gilded oh, Age yeah. books set in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Halleck writes um, Gilded Age, late 19th century, set in the Philippines. Mm. Um, Loretta Chase has a book set in Egypt. Uh, Joanna Bourne's The Black Hawk is um, set mostly in France and... and uh, has all kind. It's one of the most amazing books ever written. If people have Joanna read that. Bourne's The Black Hawk is one of those books that people talk about as transformative yes. for them. Yes. Um, and a lot of people. I personally don't read spies. <laughs> so, <laughs> as everyone knows, I'm on the record for not reading spy books. Um, but. And But I have read The Black Hawk, and it is lovely. It is like a great book. If it's, you know, if you like a spy book, it's a great book. Um, but people really love Joanna's books. And um, and so if you are a spy lover, uh, you'll never get an interstitial about it from us. But you should <laughs> Jen, if you haven't read it, you should read it. I've read The, sp- the Spy Master's Lady. I've read The Spy Master's Lady. Spy Master's Lady, I've read that one too. Yeah, that one's good. Let's put it this way. The Joanna Bourne books are the books that I have read because everyone said, oh, well, you don't like spy books, but Joanna Bourne. Mm, right. And I yeah. and I appreciate that Joanna Bourne is technically perfect, but it's still spies <laughs> and I don't care. So, <laughs> we all have our lines. We already talked about Alyssa Cole's Loyal League series, which is set More in the Civil War. And that's spies. <laughs> and that's a fantastic series. But Joanna... But- but Alyssa is a gorgeous writer, so... <laughs> I want to talk about her novella... Yes. ...that is set in 1917 Harlem, <gasps> Let Us Dream. Oh, my God, it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. And it's I, so good. I Very often, people will say, like, oh, I wish, you know, there were more books set, like, in the jazz age, and I wish I could read... St-. You know, this book is... Everything you want, yeah. Perfect. Everything you want. Alyssa was on our novella. We did a novella interstitial, and she was our guest. And one of the things that kept come that that I I really keep thinking about now, even you know, right now I'm writing a novella, and Alyssa might be the best novella writer out there right now. I was going like, to say that. She yeah, she is so good at telling that novella story in right. a lush, rich way. That somehow makes you feel like you've really eaten a whole meal while also making you like giving it to you in just such a tiny bite. Right. Because the problem with novellas is that you can feel like something's missing. Yeah. You don't get the connection between the two characters enough. Like they haven't known each other long enough. They haven't you know, there's not a strong romance there, but Alyssa nails it every time. 
Yeah. yeah. So I'm sorry. Go on. Explain. But now tell everybody about the novella. Yeah. So Bertha owns a cabaret in Harlem where she sometimes performs. Uh, the hero is Amir and he's Indian. He's come to America for sort of the promise of more. And then he's disappointed when he gets to America to learn that, you know, there are all these barriers to that promise. He, can, you know, he has trouble finding work and he's hassled by the police, but he's worried about the, the uh, you know, the, the immigration officers. She hires him as a dishwasher and then he kind of begins to cook. So it's that food is love uh, theme that we all love where, you know, he's taking care of her by feeding her and they make this deal where he wants to learn about the politics of America. So he listens in on her her lectures that, you know, she's giving to the girls of the neighborhood. And then he teaches her how to dance. And Alyssa <laughs> um, is doing so much work here about the suffrage uh-huh. movement, about, you know, the white women really excluding the black women from the conversation of suffrage, um, the immigration laws at the time the way that black business owners would were harassed at the time um, and how, especially women, how they were treated. And my favorite part of the book is he asks her at one point, don't you get angry at your country knowing that these things happen and no one does anything to stop it. And she says, if I hated it, that would be admitting that they broke me. I love it. It's perfect. Everyone should it's read it. It's a great novella. It's a great novella. It is. Um, that was part of the Daughters of the Nation anthology that um, I think we've talked about on the podcast before. But there are we'll link to the other three novellas that were there um, that were that were in that anthology also in show notes. But um, that whole anthology was about br- black suffrage. And one of the author, one of the other authors in that um, anthology was Piper Hewley, who um, is actually was my pick, one of my picks for today. Um, I really, Piper writes inspirational romances, and we've talked about this before, but I don't read a ton of inspirational because it, it's just not, it's a, it's just a, it's a part of romance that I don't, I, I just don't read very much of. Um, and, but Piper writes inspirationals set in the American South. And this one, uh, A Champion's Heart, is set in the South in the 1920s. Um, and the hero is a boxer who, so of course, like, you're in, you're in, you're near right. and dear in. to my heart, all in. <laughs> um, and he, so the, the premise is that the heroine, um, we sort of open on the heroine, and she is praying to God to forget um, this boy that she loved, that who left her. I don't know, six or seven years earlier. And his name is Champion. That's his name. That's great. That's mm-hmm. a great name. <laughs> and he and he left her, we discover, to win his fortune. To like he took himself and his fists off into the world to fight for his fortune so that he could come back and give her the life she deserved. Um, but he's been gone for six or seven years and she's not sure he's coming back and she's just desperate to forget him so that she can move forward in her life. And it's like instantly you're sort of in this moment where you think like, oh, it's just everything that you kind of want in a second chance, like where the love is just so clearly there and he's already doing everything he can to get her to come back. back. Right. 
And then he comes back. He turns up, of course, um, and he's going blind from the fights. And he, oh wow, um, and so he is sort of in this place where he thinks he's he's got. Well, he knows he has one last fight in him, and it's like for big money. And if he wins it, then he can retire and give Dealey, the heroine, this the life that she deserves. And it is really, really beautiful. Um, there is. Uh, there's a whole sort of threat, a through line of um, about leaving the South and like what it what it is to be a black woman who has an opportunity to leave um, the South and, and make a new life in the North. Sure. This would have been the Great Migration. Right. But she's got this sort of long. The whole beginning is her sort of trying to deal with the fact that champion like if she leaves, she'll never he'll never come back to her like mm. he'll never be able to find her there's so piper is a professor and she she sort of co- she builds up this really rich world that you know as a as a white kid in america i never learned about you know what was happening in the south in the 1920s and so um for me this book is really transformational in terms of the way that i think about that I thought about or think about romance um, in in different places. Um, it, I had never read anything like it, and it's really, I think, beautiful. Piper's very talented. Very talented. I think setting is something that we really take for granted. Yeah, and I and I don't want people to. I think like the fact that you know reading anything is really determined by like time and place and you know i think that even um like a medieval i guess that i would like to briefly talk about is elizabeth kingston's the king's man mm. which um i actually listen to on audio and i don't i like listening on audio but i almost exclusively reread books in audio so i'm like listening to a book i already know because i'm not a very good listener i like you know i i don't and also, I read so much faster than I can listen, but I like listening to audio at, like, one. I don't speed it up. I don't – I'm not in a rush. If I'm listening on audio, it's like I want it to, like – I really want to, like, bathe in the language. That's what I'm doing. But The King's Man, I think I was, like, going on a a drive. I just needed to have something to listen to, and someone said it was a really good audio book. And it really is a fantastic audio book. It's set in Wales in, like, the 13th century. I think. And it is about a young woman named um, Gwenlian, who essentially she's a virgin widow. She was sort of had an arranged marriage and this, you know, this husband she never met essentially died before they could, you know, consummate the marriage. And in the interim, her mother has taught her to be this like kind of leader of men. And she's a swordswoman. And she runs into, she falls in love with this Rainolf, who is English. And the story, and, you know, it's really interesting. Like, he's like, she's ugly. She thinks she, you know, she, yes, she's, why do these men listen to her? There's all this sort of cultural clash. But um, a lot of it, because it's Welsh, you know, I was kind of like, I don't know these words or these names. And so I also think in audio, it's such a fantastic audio experience because you don't, I didn't have to like struggle with like, am I saying this name right or this place right? Um, and so I also found that 
for me, listening to audio, especially if there's like a language difference, um, right, or like place name difference. So in this case, this book is also really good in audio. But, you know, it's them. I think a lot of these stories, too, almost always are about like one person has a family and one doesn't. And sublimating the one person into the family structure that the other one has is, I don't know, like those, that plot is so common in historicals. And I think it's just really interesting the way um, this book plays with that. And also the Jeannie Lynn book that I talked about earlier is sort of the same. But I mean, even when I think of Joanna about your series, The Uptown Girls, what does it mean to be bringing these like, you know, bad guys into the pristine family structure of the greens well right right? and that's why i thought the epilogue um of devil of downtown was so important because you had to see like how that all sort of came how how it all comes full circle um it would have been awkward me thinks it would have been pretty awkward (laughs) (laughs) poor duncan green yeah that's their dad he deserved it yes he did deserve it (laughs) You did. Um, well, I had another two. I had Emma Berry and Genevieve Turner's Free Fall, <gasps> too. Oh, again. That series. So good. It's so good. Um, the series is called now you've you've chased it from my mind. It's like men Sorry. in Men in Space. It's not <laughs> Men in Space. <laughs> That's a terrible name for a series. Um, um anyway, the so the Freefall is set during the space race in the early 1960s, and it's part of a five or six book series. Um, You don't have to read them in order at all. Um, But essentially, it's it's a bunch of astronauts and other people related to the space race. Um, And it's called Fly Me to the Moon, the series, not Men in Space. Thank God you were not trying to do that not, one. I was, I was not, like, thankfully. Um, so this one is set in um, Houston, Texas, uh, obviously, because it's, you know, the space race in 1965. Remember when Joanna was like, and then he teaches her to cook because food is love. Yeah. There's no fucking jello molds in this goddamn book, though, <laughs> right? Nobody is, like, bringing out their weirdo 60s dishes. No, that's a really good point. You would think that there would be, like, a wife, wife, like, potluck or something. Something. Right. Somebody crinkled up the potato chips instead of the cornflakes on the tuna casserole. (laughs) And that was love back in the Houston of the 70s, because you know that shit was happening. Oh, everything wiggled on that potluck table. Absolutely everything (laughs) had a a wiggle. (laughs) The, her, the hero is Dean Garland, astronaut extraordinaire, who and there's been a you know very dramatic occurrence at the space department at NASA, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, fine. Who cares? It's fossils. I don't care. It's true. It's fossils. <laughs> Whatever at the space department. Um, anyway, so there's been a thing, and 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 um, NASA has basically said like, "Hey, men, you need to settle down and like focus up on work. Like this is we are in a race to the moon, and you need to understand that like everything else takes second seat." 
except there's a problem in that Dean has, um, ha- there's an accidental pregnancy and Dean has to get married. Because it also happens to be the daughter, he's like knocked up the girl, the daughter of the, um, of the, the company that makes the spacesuits. So, I mean, he can't exactly just walk away from her. Like, this is serious business. And so she's adorable. And they had this kind of, like, hot one-night thing. And she got pregnant. And now they're married. Like, shotgun wedding married. Um, And so he's like, but okay, fine. I don't have time for a wife. I don't have time for all the things that happen with a wife, particularly the stuff in the bedroom, because it's so distracting. And so we're going to live in, like, a sexless, loveless marriage. We'll deal with the fact that we're married after I get to be the first man who goes um, to the moon. The first man on the moon or walk in space. Um, And so she's like, "Uh, that doesn't work for me. I would like for you to love me and I would like for us to do it. And so um, she basically, like, sets out to make him love her and like seduce him and make him want her. And it's really soft and gentle and ultimately everything works out and it's just really nice. But also I have not read a book, a romance novel set after 1920. Oh yeah. Ever. So again, one of those moments where I was like, Shit, I didn't wow. even know we could write romance novels in the 60s. Right. Does that count as historical, though? <laughs> uh, the rule is less than 40 years, more than 40 years. So the 1980s. Wow. The early 80s are on the table Drag starting me. next year. Making me feel real old. Yikes. Me too. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> they meet at a Madonna concert, I guess. That's making me feel real old. Very soon. Yeah, in one of the novellas in the series has a really excellent marriage in trouble where these two are essentially completely estranged and they find their way back to each other over Thanksgiving and it is delightful. Yeah, I just really like this series because I think, first of all, there's something really, well, first of all, it is super unusual. Like, it is real weird to be reading about the 1960s in a romance novel. And frankly, it's kind of weird to be reading about the 1960s in any novel. Like, I feel like there's just no, nobody's writing. No, there are these blackout years, it feels like, in fiction where you, there are things that you, you can write sort of recent, like the recent past, and then you can write the far away past, but the sort of middle past doesn't happen as much. I just think that's really cool. And I mean, you know, of course we come back to again and again this question of um, there are so many opportunities in the world for us to um, write romance novels in time, in place. um, And still we're stuck in this this tiny time frame, the lion's share. Of, of historicals. And it just doesn't make very much sense to me. When I have been checking NetGalley lately, which for those of you that it, it's like a platform for books for reviewers, um, Harlequin historicals have had like, I, and I have not read any of them, but they seem to be really flirting with like different different times and places. So there's one that's coming out in um, July called The Flapper's Baby Scandal. 
Oh, wait, the flapper from Harlequin. What? Harlequin historical. Oh, oh, it, it comes out next month. The wait, the flapper's babysitter. The flapper's baby scandal. Babysitter. That, that is makes a different more book. <laughs> That's a different book. That's the boxcar children. <laughs> Baby Scandal. Yeah, the Sisters like, of the Roaring Twenties. It's a series. Yes, exactly. The first one's called The Flapper's Fake Fiance. Oh, now wait, though. This is not Harlequin Historical originally. This is Mills and Boone brought oh. over. The UK romance market is very different. But I remember when I sold to the UK, somebody saying to me, like, don't get excited. Like, And yeah. when you go to the UK... There is no romance in bookstores at all. Like, really? I don't know where people are getting their romance novels because they are not getting them from bookstores. I must have been in 20 bookstores the week, the two weeks after my release date last year because I was in England for release and nowhere. Didn't matter, huh? Yeah, it's fa- it's fascinating. I mean, so I guess I would say maybe if you're interested, I have I cannot speak to the quality or I'm buying this. It's really interesting to me that there when I look at NetGalley now, there's now there's a lot of books that seem to be outside of that Regency, and I don't know how they're selling and whether or not it'll it'll we'll keep seeing it. But oh my god, I'm curious about them, Joanna. This is your jam. Patsy Dreyer may be a biddable heiress by day, but nothing will stop her from dancing all night in Hollywood speakeasies <gasps> or fulfilling her dream of becoming a reporter. She's investigating the mystery of an escaped convict with brooding, handsome newspaper editor Lane Cox until they must pretend to be engaged. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, 100%. put it in my veins. <laughs> yes. Also, I want her to talk like, I want her to do one of those like old-timey New York new yeah. reporter talks. Yes. <laughs> and you, sir, what do you think you're doing here? <laughs> if, that, if the audiobook of that book does not include that voice, then I don't yeah. want it. <laughs> And then they have not done their jobs properly. <laughs> Did you guys ever see the Hudsucker proxy? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And Jeff, oh, yeah. Jeff yeah, Jason sure. Lee's yeah. whole character. That's all I want from every 1920s book. Not just potatoes, Smitty. Here comes the gravy. The chump really likes me. A Muncie girl. Yeah, I mean, it's Rosalind Russell in His Girl Friday. Yes. I mean, yeah. I want yes. that, like, all the time. I think, you know, here's what I would say is we... As, like, we wrap up, I think there's so, there are choices out there. There's still not enough. No. Right? Like, I think yesterday I saw someone on Twitter saying, I'm looking for someone, I, I think, like, a, an author who's writing, like, black queer historicals, and I can think of this one book. Yep. So, please keep in mind that, you know, again, Ooh, buy I the book. Send me that tweet, because s- I have an answer okay, I'll find to that. It. Yeah. Rebel Carter wrote a Rebel oh, yeah, yeah. Is that the one? Is that the yeah, one might book? Have been, it might have been the one book, right? So, I guess I would just say, you know, keep in mind that if you're interested in this topic, then the answer is to buy these books. Yeah. Right? Buy Beverly Jenkins' books. Buy Joanna's books. Buy Rebel Carter's books. Right? Buy E.E. E. Ottoman's books. Find ways to buy the books that are this, because that's how you show that there's a market for them. Yeah. I mean, that's there's truthfully, just, yeah. when I say, like, oh, Scotland doesn't sell. I mean, Scotland sells way better than than most of these other markets. But it's it's because and and I know because I, I can hear you all through through the internet saying, but I love 
Gilded Age. I love the whatever. It's true, but the numbers, like, we just need to buy more of them. Well, and Joanna, while we wrap up, tell us about Jack, my baby Jack Mulligan. Sell it to us because it's amazing. Uh, the de- the Devil of Downtown is uh, the third book of the Uptown Girls series. Uh, it is the third green sister, the youngest, the baby, and the uh, Justine. The hero is Jack Mulligan, who is like the the biggest criminal kingpin in New York City at the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's based on a real life historical figure. Um, Pro- probably less sexy. Uh, yes, <laughs> definitely. Um Paul Kelly, who actually did really consolidate all the gangs into New York into mm-hmm. to one organization that he, you know, masterminded. So it's really he's mm-hmm. like really the start of what we consider the American mob. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Jack is um, getting his manicures and he wants to open a um, he's like a dandy. He dresses, you know, he speaks several languages. He. Um, dresses really, really fine. Um, his goal is to open a national brewery because sort of beer production in the late 19th century really becomes national. So uh, Justine is a do-gooder. She's out trying to save the world any way she can. And so she's downtown uh, serving in, in soup kitchens, volunteering in missions, um, anything she could do for the legal aid society. And she's out, uh, trying to track down wife deserters, which in those Mm -hmm. days were just men who just decided, "Mm, I don't really feel like being married anymore and being a father. So peace out. Um, cause it was real hard to get a divorce in those days. So there were a lot of men who just up and left and, uh, She's out trying to find them and bring them to the police and force them to sort of do their due diligence to their family. And that's how she comes across Jack. And romantic times ensue, I guess. And then they're just sexy together (laughs) for 400 pages. Here's here's what you need to know about this. If you were to, like, say, like, pull some things out of a hat that you'd be like, you could never make this sexy. One of the things on my list I know what you're gonna would be say. bowling. Would be bowling. bowling. I'm not going to lie to you. You'd be like, could you make bowling sexy? And I would be like, no. Um, because I'm thinking of, like, what is that movie? Oh, The Big Lebowski. Sure. Yeah, In The yeah, Big yeah. Lebowski, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So, but I was wrong, everybody. I was wrong. That's all you need to know. You have an old, you have your own bowling alley in your house. It can get real sexy. Yeah, That's what sure. you need to know. Sure, I mean, sure. there's balls. There's holes. I don't know. It just feels like <laughs> it just feels like. I think that's great. I think we're there. <laughs> there's balls. Start as you mean to go on. There's, there's balls, balls and holes. <laughs> uh, amazing. So yeah, there's bowling. Um, there's bowling. <laughs> We've really done a great job selling this. It's super hot too. If you've never it read is. a Joanna Shoop novel, you are missing <laughs> out on the sheer fire of a Joanna Shoop novel. I think the other thing I really enjoy about Joanna Shoop novels is like the Gilded Age New York. When they describe his home, I'd like to imagine how much that home would cost now. Oh, I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> a billion dollars. <laughs> 
right? Multiply it by like 27 or, you know, whatever the rate of inflation is. I mean, it's crazy. That is one of the writing historicals and running money into historicals is one of the hardest things because money never seems impressive. And if you tell it true and then if you tell it false, you get hate mail from readers. (laughs) (laughs) If you're like, he made millions of dollars, uh, millions of pounds. In a, in a year, they're like, that's impossible. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, but... But, like, also, it's not impossible. There's a... I, I When I wrote my casino series, I based it on a real casino owner. Um, and, like, the legend is that he could make a million pounds in a night in, like, 1814. Which, Whoa! Well, I mean, huge money. Okay, well... Thank you for listening to us talk about all this business. Um, I love an unusual historical. So to Sarah, if you have Mm -hmm. any you would like to recommend to us, we would certainly love to hear about them. But more urgently and more importantly, I don't even know. I I don't know how I got to this far in the podcast without saying fuck yeah, Florence. (laughs) Because Florence, Florence Green, the heroine of The Prince of Broadway, which was like one of my favorite books of the past year, bar none, and Devil of Downtown is, like, right there, has a heroine named Florence, and Fuck Yeah Florence is basically, like, my calling card if I just want to, like, channel my inner, like, badass. So, Joanna, tell everybody where we can find you on the internets. Uh, so I'm pretty much Joanna Shoop uh, on Twitter and Instagram, Joanna Shoop author on Facebook, joannashoop.com. If you want to order signed books um, from my local indie, that's Words with an S in Maplewood, New Jersey. Um, just put in the comments you'd like me to sign your book and I'll sign it. If you are listening to this on release day, on, on Wednesday, uh, June 24th, Joanna and I are doing an, an AMA and conversation about both of our books, which are both out next Tuesday um, in the OSRBC Book Club on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash groups slash OSRBC. We're recording it. So if you're reading it, if you're listening to this after the fact and you want to go back and listen and you're into hearing more about both of our books, you can go do that there. I can't wait. Yeah, we have... We both have books out next week. I'm super excited. Um, who else has it? It's us. Caroline Linden, Linden. has a new book out next Vanessa week. Vanessa Riley. And Vanessa Riley. So we are, it's it's historical, it's historical excitement all, all, all week long next week. And I just have to say how much I love Daring and the Duke and everybody should buy it oh, and read it. Thank you. Because thank you very much. Ewan is the best. Oh. The oh. best. Joanna dealt with me tearing my hair out on that book so she's being very kind um okay so we are Fated Mates you can find us on Twitter at Fated Mates on Instagram at Fated Mates Pod um if you're on Facebook join that OSRBC group uh there's a chat every Wednesday uh tell us about a book that blooded you this is the end of our season um we are we are wrapping up we have a few more episodes and then uh we're gonna start fresh in August with a season three um we're not doing any more read-alongs this season but uh, we still want to hear about the books that blooded you. Call us and let us know. That number is 646 450 3766. 
Our show is produced every week by Eric Mortensen. Our logo and all the buttons and swag and stickers and cool stuff that you can get from Faded Mates are designed by best friend Kelly of Resistance Buttons. And you can go to Jen's website, jenreadsromance.com, to buy those. Or you can visit the Faded Mates website, fadedmates.net. Uh, click on merch, and it'll take you everywhere that there is to go. Um, also on that on the website are transcripts, which are coming uh, slowly but surely, and uh, the Spotify playlist for all the music that gets uh, inserted into the podcast, and a you know endless video player that will play <laughs> the videos of all the music that gets inserted into the podcast. Fade made stickers and buttons. Uh, there's a Sarah pack and a Gen pack. And um, yes, and pre-order or no, yeah, pre-order coming out next week, June 30th. Um, Pre-order The Devil of Downtown by Joanna Shoup from Words Bookstore in New Jersey or pre-order the my book, Daring in the Duke from Word Bookstore in Brooklyn and get a limited edition Faded Mate sticker. This took a long time. We have to shorten it. But we love you. Stay tuned for um, somebody's voicemail after this. And um, stay safe out there, everyone. Be good to each other. Wear a mask. Bye, guys. Hi, Faded Mates. It's uh, Eva here. And I'm calling because I've got two books that I really want to share with you guys. Um, The first book that blooded me was the first romance I ever stumbled across. Um, when I was 12, and that's Warrior's Woman by Johanna Lindsay. And I recently did a reread um, in memoriam since she's recently passed. And while there are certain things that don't hold up real well, i.e. the strong virgin heroine versus the big alpha male, and she constantly gets distracted by sex and just kind of forgets that she's a strong heroine, um, the fact that I read it at 12, and I didn't catch a lot of that, but the idea that people were having sex, like, outside in the woods and on foreign planets, like, the sci-fi reader in me was 100% here for that, and it led to many, many hours holed up in the study carols of my public library that summer, uh, binge reading anything off of the romance shelf, um, because I couldn't bring those books home, (laughs) so I read them very, very quickly uh, tucked away in my library. Um, The other book that blooded me, though, I read uh, as I was finishing college, and that one was Jewels of the Sun by Nora Roberts. Um, You have a stressed-out perfectionist professor from Chicago who follows her roots back to Ireland and Grand's Cottage uh, and falls in love with a handsome bartender but more importantly, gives herself permission to write instead of teaching. And any of you who know my backstory, like, this book is kind of my life. Uh, I was a teacher for a while. Now I write romance. I'm living my own happily ever after. Um, And this is one of those Nora books that I come back to over and over again because it just feels so pertinent to me. Although I do love Born and Ice, uh, Brianna and Grayson forever. That end scene just kills me every time I read it. Anyhow, those are the books that blooded me. Um, Thank you so much for all of the work that you do on Faded Mates. 
I love listening, even though I'm one of those weirdos who couldn't finish all the IAD books. I still love them all. Um, and if you guys want to find me, I'm on Instagram at author Eva Moore. Bye.